So good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, we are going to be in John chapter 9. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 9. So as you are turning there, I know this weekend was a big, big weekend for many of us uh, with it being deer season. Uh, I hope some of you all had uh, good luck out there. I'll just tell you my brief interaction with deer season. And so last Sunday night, we had a progressive dinner with our students. And if you don't know what a progressive dinner is, that's where we have a big giant meal with our students, but we have different courses at different houses. And so we had gone around to, to several different houses when we were on our way back, we were riding in the Silver Bullet, which is that old crusty van out there, and uh, we were on our way back to the church, and so up ahead, we see two deer crossing in front of us. And so all we can see is these deers, got the headlights, and so I start to slow down a little bit, and behind me, there is a middle school girl, and she says, hey, Chad, my dad says you've never killed a deer. So you need to speed up and hit that because that's the only way that you'll ever get a deer. <laughs> so um, I, I am glad that I'm a topic at com of conversation at somebody's household. Um, but somebody's not getting a Christmas card this year. So, um, <laughs> so we're in John chapter 9. We're going to finish up the, the chapter today. Um, and so this is... Uh, where Jesus has healed the man born blind. We've seen that. We saw him heal him. We saw that Jesus moved towards the blind man. This extraordinary miracle is prophesied through the Old Testament that when uh, the Old Testament talks about the coming of the Messiah, that it says that miracles like this, that the eyes of the blind will be opened, that would accompany the Messiah. And so it's an extraordinary miracle. And so last week we saw two very different responses. We saw the response of the man versus the response of his parents when they are confronted by the Pharisees uh, about what happened. And so we saw that the parents, they were unwilling to confess Jesus. They thought that the, the cost of following Jesus was much too great. And why was that? Because the penalty for them would have been excommunication from the synagogue. And we saw that this was such a big deal that being excommunicated means that they would lose literally everything except for life itself. That would be the only thing, but they would be social outcasts, excluded from society. And so that was a big deal. But we saw that the man himself, he confessed the truth about Jesus despite the cost. He knew what that cost was going to be. Everyone knew it. There was consensus about what would happen if you talked about Jesus and despite that, he confessed Jesus anyway, and he was kicked out of the synagogue. And so we saw that there's a very real cost sometimes to following Jesus. There is a big cost to following him. And we also saw that suffering is a real part of this life. And so when we come face to face with suffering, just like the blind man being born blind, when he is persecuted for following Jesus... We, we have to ask ourselves, how does God want to reveal his glory in our suffering? And that's a really hard thing to wrestle with. I had to wrestle with that even this week, dealing with a situation just messed up with foster care. I had to wrestle with this, and God brought this to my attention. And he, he said, hey, I'm going to work this out for your glory. And, and the truth of the matter is, I don't know how that's going to work out. I never know how that's going to work out, but... I was reminded that, that God has met my deepest need. 
And that's all that we can cling to sometimes in this life. And so that's what Jesus invites us to. So today we're going to see two additional responses when confronted with Jesus, when Jesus confronts our spiritual blindness. We're going to see the response of the Pharisees today. And again, we're going to see the response of the man. And the question we're going to ask is, how do we respond when we come to truly understand the gospel? How does that motivate our life moving forward when we are confronted with our spiritual blindness? And so as we start today, I want to caution us because we're reading just a couple scriptures today. And so I don't want us to just rush through them. It's really easy to do just to read right through some of these verses. And so sometimes our American background, our, our English background, we miss a lot of what the original audience would have picked up here, that this Jewish audience would have picked up. And so God, in his wisdom, has revealed so much in these verses. So we want to read them together and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So let's read John chapter 9, starting in verse 35. <clears throat> and so this is what God's word says. <clears throat> Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind." Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom that you reveal to us through it. We ask that you help us to slow down today that we would listen to you, that we would understand what you are saying to us. Lord, help us to wrestle rightly with what we know of you and how that should motivate us to respond to you. We are so thankful for your grace that you have come to bring us sight. And so we ask that you bless our time today in your word. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's look again at verses 35 through 37, and I really hope that my voice is going to hold out for us. So uh, we're going to see that spiritual sight is based on the right object. So again, this is John writing. He says, Jesus heard that they had put him out, finding him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. So we see that we're going to have this dialogue with Jesus, this man has this dialogue with Jesus, and this is going to lead to a greater understanding, a greater theological understanding of what the gospel actually looks like for the man. And see, previously, the man had thought he had confessed him to be a prophet, but as Jesus explains a little bit more, and again, we missed just a little bit of this through our context, but the man is going to pick up more, and he's going to demonstrate some decisive faith. He's going to grow in his knowledge and his faith in Jesus. And so from the outset, we want to remember that it's not the quality or the quantity of our faith, that our faith rests on the object of our faith. And so if you think of like a frozen pond, it's about to become winter. Sometimes we'll see ponds frozen. 
And so if you're tempted to go out on a frozen pond, but the ice is only half an inch thick, it has no bearing on your faith whether or not it's going to hold you up. You could have the strongest faith, but the moment that you step out on that pond, if it's only half an inch thick, what's going to happen? You're going to crash right through. But let's say that that ice is a, a full foot thick. You could have the weakest faith. But if your faith is in the object, your faith is in that ice. You could have that weak faith and step out on that ice, and that ice is going to hold you up. And so we want to see from the very outset that it's not about the quality or the quantity of the man's faith, but who the man's faith is in. And so Jesus goes to the man. He's been cast out of the synagogue. He's been excluded from society. And so Jesus is intentional about seeking this man out. He's not going to leave him where he is. And so Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Thank you, man. I appreciate that. So Jesus asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that Son of Man term is fully loaded. And so we want to dive into this because this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it over 80 times in the gospel. And so when we see the term Son of Man, typically we just think that that refers to uh, Jesus referring and identifying with his human nature. We see the contrast of Son of Man and Son of God, and we think Son of God is his way of identifying with the divine nature. But when Jesus uses that term, Son of Man, he is pointing to much more than just his human nature. He is actually pointing to his divine nature. And so when Jesus uses this title, he's actually referring back to Daniel chapter 7. And so this is a passage that all of the Jews, the blind man, the Pharisees, they would all understand when Jesus makes this reference. And so look at me, uh, look with me at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This will be on the screen. And so Daniel has had a vision, had a dream, and this is what he says. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that being God the Father, and was presented before God, before him. And to him, being the Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so this passage here, this dream that God has given to Daniel is pointing to the coming Messiah. And so the Son of Man is a messianic title. We see this human divine figure, this Son of Man, is coming and would be given dominion and authority over all the nations forever. This clouds of heaven that is surrounding him, that communicates his divine nature. And so if you know anything about the book of Daniel, this this happening in Daniel 7 is actually then a link back to Daniel chapter 2. Because in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is asked to interpret a dream by King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He has this big, giant statue. It's made of all sorts of different materials, gold, bronze, iron, clay. And those different uh, metals, those different materials, they represent different empires, the empires of Babylon, of Persia, of Greece, and Rome. And so then in 
King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he sees this giant stone. The, Daniel says that it's not cut by human hands. This giant stone comes and smashes the statue. And then the stone grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And so what Daniel is telling us in chapter 7 is that that stone from King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that is the son of man, and that his kingdom is coming to fill the entire earth. It signifies his eternal reign that is never going to be revoked. No other kingdom will be able to stand against the kingdom that the son of man is bringing to earth. And so that's what Jesus is referring to when he calls himself the son of man. And this, this vision that Daniel has, that's a fulfillment even of Psalm 110, which Tara just read. And so all these Jewish, this Jewish audience, the man, the Pharisees, the crowd, when they hear Jesus talk about him being the son of man, this is what they are thinking about. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah that he is bringing about a better kingdom. And Jesus is saying, everything that you guys have waited for, every single thing that you have waited for is going to be fulfilled in me, that my kingdom is better, that I'm bringing a kingdom that will never be conquered again by any human kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, this is me. Listen up. And so it's even more than that. It's even more than, than this coming kingdom because when, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is also saying that I am the revelation of God. And so remember back to John chapter 1, verse 51. This will be on the screen. Jesus says, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so this is a reference, again, back to Genesis chapter 28 where Jacob has fallen asleep. He has this dream, and he has this ladder. He sees this ladder extending all the way up to heaven, and he sees angels coming and going from the earth back and forth up to God. And so when Jacob wakes up from that dream, he names that place Bethel because that is where the Lord has revealed himself. And so as the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, I am the new Bethel because God is revealed in me, that God is revealed through Jesus. Jesus is saying, I provide better access to the Father than this ladder going up and down and angels going up and down, that I provide better access. And so Jesus is the revelation of God. He's the revelation of God to man as the Son of Man, that he is the Word incarnate. We saw that in 1.1, John chapter 1, verse 1, that he is the Word incarnate that uniquely reveals God to us. That is what the Son of Man is. And because of that, we have better access to the Father. Sometimes we think, man, if I were like Jacob and I had this tremendous dream where I saw this ladder going up and down and I saw these angels going to and from God, man, I would really believe. But do you know that Jacob is jealous of us? Jacob would say, I want to switch places with you because you have access to Jesus. You have access to the God that you don't need a ladder, you don't need a dream or a vision in order to come 
to the Father. And so Jesus is saying, I am that revelation of God as the Son of Man, that I am bringing an eternal kingdom. And all of that points to the purpose of the Son of Man, that he would be lifted up for salvation. So think back with me to John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This will be on the screen. But this is Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And again, this is linking back to things that all the Jewish audience would know. This links back to Numbers 21, where the the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They are grumbling against God. They're grumbling against Moses. And because of that, God sends these fiery serpents into the midst of the camp. And so these serpents, they bite people, and when they are bit, they die. And so you see thousands upon thousands dying. And so Moses intercedes before God, and God has Moses. He makes him make a bronze serpent, and they put it on a really tall pole. And so anyone that is now bit by these fiery serpents, all they have to do in order to be saved, to not lose their life, they have to only look at this serpent that is raised up on this pole. There's no need for anti-venom. They don't have to apply a tourniquet to keep the poison from spreading. All they have to do is look at this pole. And so Jesus is saying that belief in me Looking on me leads to eternal life, that we are saved through the Son of Man, that he is lifted up, and all you have to do to be saved is to look upon him. And so Jesus is saying, salvation only comes through me. And so when we see this term, Son of Man, like I said, it is really easy just to skip on through that, read right through it, but this is everything that Jesus is communicating to us. This is everything that he is communicating to the man. This is everything that he is hearing. That Jesus is saying that I have all authority, I have all power, I have all dominion forever. That I am the revelation of God. That I am the object of your salvation and that I am the only hope of your salvation. And so this is what the man hears when Jesus comes to him. And this is what we need to hear when we are confronted with Jesus, that we need to hear that he is the Messiah. We need to hear that he is our access to God. We need to hear that he is the only way for salvation. He is our only hope for salvation. And so this is a big deal. It's more than just saying, yep, I believe in the Son of Man. It is a big deal for us to know what Jesus is revealing about himself. And so look at verse 38. Verse 38 says, And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And so we see the man's right response. We see the man publicly confess. He says, Lord, I believe. There's an eagerness there. There's no hesitation. He believes what Jesus has done for him. He believes what Jesus is telling him. And what does he do? He worships Jesus right there on the spot. So does that mean that he goes and he grabs a guitar, runs and finds the nearest guitar, and then starts strumming and singing to him face to face? Probably not. But what that word translates there is that the man prostrated himself before Jesus. And so do you know what that means? 
It means that he literally laid out on the ground, on his face, the most vulnerable position that you could ever be in. I'm, I'm even hesitant to do that here because it, it's just so vulnerable to lay with your face down and give everything that you are an all-out act of worship. He prostrated himself before the Lord because of who Jesus revealed himself. And so our word for worship, it comes from a Saxon word uh, that combined the word worth, W-O-O-R-T-H, worth and ship. So worth ship. And so that means that we are ascribing proper worth to God when we worship, that we approach and address God as worthy, that we are giving God his proper worth. And so that's what the man is doing. He is saying that Jesus is worth all the glory, all the honor, and infinite, infinitely more that I'm going to give everything that I am to worship. And so we saw in John chapter 4 that Jesus said that true worshipers, that we will worship in spirit and in truth. And so when we worship in spirit, we are worshiping from the inside out. And that is only possible because we now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And that Holy Spirit, that gives us access, like we just talked about, that gives us access to, the God, to God the Father, that we have access because of Jesus. And because of that, we worship, it wells up, it spills out because the Spirit is welling up inside of us. And then as we worship, we also worship in truth, according to the truth that Jesus has revealed to us, the truth that he's revealed to the man here in this passage, but also the truth that he's revealed to us in his word. So all the things that Jesus has told this man, that inspires and motivates our worship. And so look at how Don Whitney describes worship. This will be on the screen. He says, the more that we focus on God, the more we understand and appreciate his infinite worth. As we understand and appreciate this, we can't help but respond to him. Worship is focusing on and responding to God. It is being preoccupied with God. And so have you ever been preoccupied with something? Just a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in my living room floor, and I got a notice on my phone that I needed to set my fantasy football lineup, that I needed to make a change. And in one of the leagues, I'm in first place, so this is a big deal because I have to keep my standing in first place. It's not our league, Tyler. Sorry. I'm clearly not in first place in that one. But I am fixing this, and un unbeknownst to me, my three-year-old comes up to me, and he has said my name three or four times, and I, I completely didn't hear him. So much so that he comes up and stands in front of me and claps right in my face. And I'm like, oh, I was completely preoccupied with what I was doing and had no concept that stuff was going on around me. I was absolutely preoccupied. And so we want to ask ourselves, are we preoccupied with God? Does he consume our attention? Is our worship of him, is it all out? Do we really believe that Jesus is worthy of our worship, so much that that's all we're preoccupied with. And so what keeps us from realizing who Jesus is, what keeps us from worshiping, is our spiritual blindness. And so look again at verses 39 through 41. John writes, he says, Jesus said, 
For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So Jesus is again talking about sight. He's talking about blindness. And we've seen this over and over where he uses these physical descriptions in order to communicate spiritual realities. And so the physical healing of providing sight, opening the eyes of the blind, that's a picture here of spiritual transformation. That Jesus, as he's opening eyes, he is also bringing judgment into the world. And we'll remember back in John chapter 3, verse 17, this will be on the screen, that again, in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so we want to remember that Jesus' purpose is to save the world from condemnation. And so that saving some means that there's going to be condemnation for others. And because some will refuse Jesus, his purpose is also judgment. And so Jesus says that those who do not see, they may see, and those who see may become blind. And so again, we're not talking physical sight, we're talking spiritual sight. This is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 6 about opening the eyes of the blind, and that those who understand that they are in spiritual darkness... Those who understand that they have a deep spiritual need, those are the ones who will see. Those are the ones who will have spiritual sight just like the blind man was given. But the Pharisees, they have physical sight. They can see perfectly. But even though they they can see, they can't see the glory of Jesus when it's standing right in front of them. And so if they were blind spiritually... If they were blind spiritually, they would not be guilty of beholding Jesus and then warring against him. They see his works, but they fight against him despite the overwhelming evidence that is right in front of them. The fact that a miracle happened that they can't deny is overwhelming evidence, and yet they still fight against him. They claim to perceive the truth and understand, but they arrive at the wrong conclusion, and that's what establishes their guilt. And so remember what Jesus says again in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, and this is the judgment that the light, the light being Jesus, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so here's the deal. The Pharisees, they loved the darkness. The Pharisees loved the darkness. They weren't looking for the light. They were happy where they're at. And in their arrogance, they chose their own blindness over sight. And so this is what the expository commentary says about the Pharisees says that Jesus healed a man born blind. Was anything impossible for him? The Pharisees not only fail to repent of their sin, they also reject Jesus and show no concern for the man born blind. They do not rejoice with him who now sees. They do not celebrate Jesus as the one who can do what has never been done before. 
They do not consider how other blind and lame people could benefit from Jesus. They show no interest in how Jesus could help others correct their own mistaken thinking and bring fulfillment to what the Old Testament had prophesied. The opponents of Jesus, they're more concerned only with themselves, their own agenda, their own authority, their own control of the people. And as a result, the judgment of Jesus, the judgment Jesus brought into the world stands against them. He came into the world as light, and they loved darkness because of their evil works. They love the darkness because of their evil works. So that takes us to our applications. And so application number one today, we have to wrestle with this question of, are we spiritually blind? Are we spiritually blind? And so look at what Josh Moody says. Again, speaking of the Pharisees, he says their spiritual arrogance has blinded them to any possibility of seeing their own sin and therefore seeing their need of Jesus. It is humbling to read in this story how once again, it is the religiously well-informed who fail to be transformed by seeing a miracle done by Jesus himself. So how do we guard ourselves against spiritual pride that can blind us to truly seeing and experiencing God? We win that victory of salvation, and we experience that defeat of spiritual pride if and as we have a personal encounter with Christ, recognizing him and allowing him to show us where we are mistaken and experiencing with him an ongoing life of joyful and costly discipleship. And so do we have that same sort of spiritual arrogance? Do we have it? Do we see our true need? So we want to remember that we, here in this room, we are religiously well-informed, that we have access to the Bible, that we are here on a regular basis. And so are we spiritually arrogant, or have we had a personal encounter with Jesus? Look at what R. R. Kent Hughes says. He says, those who are blind are the ones who do not realize their need, that those who receive sight are the ones who sense their darkness. The Pharisees thought that they had it all together, that they had arrived. Through their acquaintance with the law, they knew that they were not perfect, but they did not understand how deeply infected they were with sin. So here's the big point. They adopted the external appearance of having dealt with sin, though actually they had never faced the darkness in their own hearts. That they adopted the external appearance of having dealt with their sin, but never, never faced the darkness in their own hearts. They were self-satisfied. They said, we see when in reality they were blind. So in the same ways, have we only merely dealt with the outward appearance of our sin? Have we actually dealt with the darkness that is in our own hearts? It is easy to come into church. It's easy to come in here and play the game and, and communicate to everybody that everything is all right. That, nope, I'm good. There's nothing to see in my life. I'm good where I'm at. I'm good enough. I've done enough. I'm okay. No thanks, God. I'm going to hold on to that. I'm going to hold on to my greed. I'm going to hold on to my lust. I'm going to hold on to my pornography. I'm going to hold on to my lifestyle. I'm not going to give that up. 
And it's easy to come in here and hold on to things like that and only merely deal with the appearance of sin while not actually dealing with our heart. And so sometimes I, I feel like I sound like a broken record because this is something that we, I feel like I talk about all the time. But I'm reminded of Martin Luther that when he was preaching to his church in Germany, his congregation asked, like, why do you keep preaching the gospel? Why do you keep telling us about our need for, to be saved from our sin? We want to move on to something else. Like, why do you keep hitting on our, our need for grace despite our sin? And Martin Luther said, because I want you to get it. Like, I want you to get it. This is literally life and death. This is life and death, and I want this to war in your soul. I want it to war in our souls, because I don't want to see any of us walking out of here thinking that we're okay because we think that we see, when in reality, that we're blind. And so I hope that this makes us so uncomfortable that there's only two choices, that we run to Jesus, or we run out that door never to come back. Because in reality, that's the only two choices we have. We either run to Jesus, or we don't. And so just like the blind man, each of us needs that miracle. Each of us needs Jesus, and he is the only source of that miracle. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we spiritually blind? So that's application number one. Application number two, do we have a right understanding of who Jesus is? And so this is going back to Jesus being the object of our faith, the object of our salvation. We need to understand that Jesus, he is more than just a friend, that he is more than just a break glass in case of emergency, that he is the divine son of man, that he is the Messiah. He holds all power, all glory, all dominion forever, that he is the revelation of God to us, that he is lifted up for our salvation on the cross, that he is alive from the dead, he is exalted forever, that he is the object of of our faith. He's the object of our salvation, and he is our only hope of salvation. That is who Jesus is. He is all of that and infinitely more, and we have to understand that, and when we understand that, that is going to drive our response, which leads into application number three, that who Jesus is should motivate our response to worship. Who, we, who Jesus is, that should motivate me to worship. That worship should overflow out of gratitude for what he has done for me. Because of all that stuff that Jesus has done, all that he has revealed about himself being the son of man, that that causes me to worship. And so we have no excuse for not worshiping. There's no, I don't feel like it. Because Jesus never changes. It is not about our feelings, but it's about what he has done. It is ascribing proper worth to God. And so I think of the song that we sang last week, the hymn that we sang, It Is Well With My Soul. In, in the, the third verse of that song, maybe the greatest verse ever written, because it, is, it says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, that my sin, not in part, but the whole, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That is why, that is why we worship. 
We are called to be preoccupied with God, that we worship in spirit and in truth, and the truth of who Jesus is motivates our worship, that we bear our sin no more because of him. And in the spirit, we worship all out because he is worthy, that our worship, it's not subjective. It is based on objective fact, that we worship based on who he is and not about what we think, that we, we worship whether or not we like the song, whether or not we like to sing or not, but we worship. And so when we talk about worship, there are two kinds of worship. There's corporate worship, there's public worship, which we engage here. And so it is important for us to worship together because we know what the Lord has done for us. I know what he's done in my life, and I know many of you all in your stories. And so when I see you worshiping and you're in that spirit of gratitude because what the Lord has done in your life, that causes me to worship. And so together, we encourage one another. We spur one another on to worship. And it's, again, because what Jesus has done. And so as we worship here, we want to be careful to remember that this is not a show that we put on. We say it pretty frequently that, that the band isn't here to put on a performance for us, that they're, they're not here singing to us. And so sometimes we get questions in about, well, why do we, why do we turn up the volume or why do we put, put the lights down low? Isn't that about a show? And it's not. Because here's what I want to tell you, that as we worship, we want to remove those obstacles to our worship. And so sometimes when we feel like that we are seen or that we can be heard, we have this natural tendency to pull back in our worship. And so the reason why we push the volume a little bit, again, it's not to, to make your ears bleed. The reason why we turn the lights down is not because we just like it dark, but it's so that it removes one of those obstacles for worship. And so I, I've been telling the sound guys, like, we want to push the sound. We want to turn the lights down because I don't want us to sit there and have an excuse and, and pull back because we need to worship together because as we worship corporately, we want to remember that this previews heaven because this is what we are going to do for all eternity. We are going to be completely preoccupied with the Lord and we will never, ever get tired of it. And so we want to worship corporately. We want to worship together. I think of the, the line in the song, uh, what a wonderful name it is, that the heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, because he's raised to life again. And that's what we get to do corporately. And that's what we get to do here as a church each week. And so that is corporate worship but there is also private worship. There's private worship. And so when was the last time that you actually worshiped in private? Think about that. When was the last time you actually engaged in private worship? Because corporate worship, our public worship, isn't enough that we are called to also worship privately. And so look at what A.W. Tozer says. This will be on the screen. He says, if you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him on one day a week. So if we will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him on one day a week. 
And so like we've said, that God is worth it. He is eternally worth it. And so one day doesn't demonstrate his proper worth. If we're just coming in here and we think that we can just worship one day a week. And so we need to cultivate a regular discipline of private worship. And that is how we build this preoccupation with God. This is how we build a preoccupation with our Lord. And that as we engage in that private worship, we become more like our focus. We emulate what we think about. And if that's our preoccupation, that is how we are then transformed by the Lord. That leads to God's holiness being revealed in our life. And worship privately is the key. So, application number four. This is our last application. And so this has been a theme that we have seen running through this entire chapter, chapter 9. And so we want to remember that God's glory is revealed as he saves us. God's glory is revealed as he saves us. And so look at what the expository commentary says. It says, How easily we forget that God is sovereign over everything we are and have, and that he intends to display his power in our lives. God does not want us to be omnicompetent, self-sufficient, or self-reliant. God wants us to need him, that we are broken, our lives are not whole, and only God has the power to make us whole, to put us back together. And so this is a good reminder. This is what we always try to communicate every Sunday. This is what we always try to remind ourselves here at The Journey, that we are not great, that we are not self-sufficient or self-reliant, that we are not whole. None of us have it figured out. None of us have it together, that we are broken, sinful people. But Jesus, he sees us, and he pursues us, he gives us sight, and he gives us new life, and he transforms us. He is sovereign over absolutely everything, and he is working to reveal his glory in you and in me. And so that's what we want to cling to, and that's what we can never forget. So stand with me as we pray. So Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you see us in our need, that you pursue us, and that you give us sight, that you give us life. And so help us to understand who you truly are, Help us to understand the depth of our sin and the expanse of your grace. And as we are consumed with you, Lord, use that to motivate our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we ask that today, that today you would give sight to the blind, that you would bring life out of death. Because Jesus, you, you are the only hope of salvation. You are the Son of Man, and we give you all the glory, all the power, all the authority that you deserve. And so we ask, we ask, we beg you to move in power right now. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So as we come to this, this time of worship,
there's really two calls today. The first being that if, if you don't know Jesus, you're blind. And we want you to come. We want you to come, encounter Jesus, and see. We want you to cross from death to life. And so if that's, if that's you, man, grab one of us. Caleb and I will be down here. Grab the person next to you. We would love to talk to you and share how you can encounter Jesus. But the other call that we have is as saints, as believers, that we are called to worship. And so this last time that we have here, this isn't just a filler time until we get to go home and and go to lunch. This is a time of worship for us to reflect on what God has done for us the infinite worth that he has. And so let that motivate, let that motivate our hearts for worship. Let our worship spill out for him. My prayer is that this place, that we would erupt in worship because of who Jesus is. And so let's ask that you magnify the Lord with us. So come, you respond as the Lord leads you.